what I found with the issue of climate change and, and migration is that one in three people on the planet in 2070, 9 billion people population, will have to make a difficult decision about whether they either persevere and continue to live outside of that habitability niche or move. Welcome back to Let's Talk About Water. I'm your host, Jay Familietti. Okay, let me start by naming a few phenomena that most likely have been capturing a lot of your attention these days. Extreme flooding, catastrophic drought, rising temperatures, devastating wildfires, sea level rise. These are the issues that are shaping our future on this planet, and they are integral parts of the climate change conversation. But another equally important component is what happens when certain parts of the planet become unlivable? Well, the answer is the focus of today's episode. It's climate migration. Ultimately, in some places, people will have no choice but to up and leave their homes and head to, well, that's the big question. My guest today is Pulitzer Prize-nominated senior environmental reporter at ProPublica, Abram Lusgarten. Abram's latest works on climate migration were recently published in three parts in the New York Times Magazine and in ProPublica, and we'll be talking about those works today. Abram, it's great to have you on Let's Talk About Water. Hi, Jay. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start by asking you about your almost academic approach. I was really struck by the fact that you read and you cite journal articles. Of course, you work with scientists, and you and I have even talked about collaborating. That seems atypical to me. Are you an anomaly? How did you settle upon this approach? <laughs> I don't think it's entirely unique to me, uh, but maybe it's maybe it's uncommon. I work for ProPublica, which is geared towards you know accountability and investigative journalism. And if you want to report on the criminal justice system, then that has a you know fairly obvious um, you know meaning, uh, or even environmental crime when you can look backwards. Um, but if you want to report on issues like climate change or you know, environmental scarcity, it's a real challenge. And so, um, you know, I try to find that depth in the work or some kind of investigative angle by moving the conversation forward. And what I found, you know, with the issue of climate change and, and migration uh, after, you know, a couple of months of reporting is that, you know, there's a consensus view that climate induced migration was going to happen and it was going to be really big and really important but it kind of stopped there. Uh, there wasn't uh, really any agreement about uh, how significant it would be, how big, what numbers of people specifically, where they would start from and where they would go. Um, and you know, our ambition was, was to be able to answer those questions. And so the way to do that was to get right down, roll up our sleeves and try to get involved in, in the scientific process, which you know, I'm not really trained to do. So we find partners to, to help uh, along with that and, and partnered up with some academic institutions. And it's a different way of providing new information. We don't discover it. We go out and find it. Well, it seems to be working well, at least from reading this latest series. It's extremely well done. So, so let's get to it. What have you been finding about the topic of climate migration? Can you give us a briefing on how big it is globally? What's the scope? Or what's driving it? Yeah. So uh, in terms of scope, I mean, the most impressive thing that I found is this research that was published earlier this year in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And they found that globally, for the past 6,000 years, uh, 
people have mostly lived in a very narrow band of temperature and precipitation. That is to say there's like a, you know, an ideal range of, of climate where most people live, not exclusively, but um, the vast majority of uh, the global population. And they found that over the next, you know, 50 years uh, under, you know, a fairly uh, severe warming scenario, that band is going to um, move substantially northward and southward. And it doesn't predict migration, but what it essentially says is that one in three people on the planet today, one in three people on the planet in 2070, nine billion people population, um, will have to make a difficult decision about whether they either persevere and continue to live outside of that habitability niche in a place that for 6,000 years hasn't really supported human life very well um, or move. And uh, for sure, 3 billion people won't choose to migrate in response to climate, but that's how many people will probably have to make a decision about whether or not to move in some smaller fraction, a very, very large number will. And that really gives this overall sense of scale of how the planet's population might be reorganized. Yeah, it, it's pretty mind boggling. So it's interesting because what I really want to get at today is what are the forces that either encourage people to move or leave them no option or allow them to stay in place? And in your articles, you have some human interest stories, some some case studies about people in different countries uh, in Central America versus what's happening in the United States uh, that have chosen to move or, or have had to move, had no choice, or have opted to stay. So what are some of those big picture constraints on people that either keep them in place or allow them the freedom to move or actually require that they move? I mean, the first thing that I learned about human migration is that it's unbelievably complex and uh, it's hard to get people to agree on you know, who is a migrant and also who is an environmental migrant, um, whether environment or climate is the driving factor or a subtle factor. Um, you know, people move because they see economic opportunity or they face economic hardship or they face crime and violence or they can't grow food or they don't have enough water. And sometimes all of these things combine. And, you know, it's a question of which factor is, you know, kind of the straw that, that broke their back and forced them to make that ultimate decision. In the end, I arrived at the opinion that it didn't matter. If climate was a factor weighing in that big basket of burden, then people were a climate migrant of some sort. And you see that in the data and some of the modeling that we did to try to predict movement on, on a general scale. But we also wanted to see it or wanted to understand uh, you know, on the personal level, on the ground. So as you said, I mean, I went to, to Central America um, last summer and spend a lot of time trying to understand how people would make decisions about whether or not to move, uh, what factors would push them to consider changing their lives, uh, and, and really what was happening. And we went to Central America because obviously there's enormous pressure uh, from Central America on the U.S. border. And we had the, the caravans of, of migrants coming uh, towards the, the American border last year, um, thousands of people streaming, walking through Mexico and up to the United States. And um, mostly that movement was attributed to a lot of things unrelated to, to climate. It was attributed to the violence and, you know, gang warfare in El Salvador uh, and instability in parts of southern Mexico and and all of those things. Um, but I suspected there was a climate component as well, because that region has been suffering from extraordinary drought and just really unpredictable conditions and wild El Nino patterns that don't really fit the historical pattern. 
So uh, we went down to a number of small villages in rural parts of Guatemala and just spent time with uh, small families, subsistence farmers, to try to understand what they're dealing with. But in general, I was just astounded to learn the degree to which they weren't processing you know, pros and cons to make uh, a quote-unquote decision the way I had imagined. I wanted to kind of reverse engineer the um, their thought process. And what I found instead is that they, by the time a migrant moves because of climate, they were really moving out of sheer desperation. There were no other options. It was life or death. Um, so I found these families that uh, were starving or right on the verge of starving. They were feeding their kids, you know, one tortilla a day, maybe with a pinch of lime or salt uh, on top of it. Uh, they hadn't been able to pull off uh, a productive crop of maize or beans in three or four seasons straight. They had already borrowed or mortgaged whatever assets they had. If they had money to do that, they'd already used it and leveraged whatever opportunities they had. And by the time they moved, uh, they or made the decision to move or usually send the, the man, the head of the household to the United States. Uh, it was just an act of, of sheer desperation. And, and it gets at one of the other major points of migration, uh, which I think is really you know misunderstood, which is that most people don't want to move or migrate. Um, by far, you know, the forces of inertia around the world are for people to stay home and then to stay as close to home as possible when they do ultimately decide to move. And so, uh, you know, it's really, uh, you know, a force of desperation for large numbers of people to move over large distances. Yeah, I thought that was really enlightening because I think in the U.S., the current perspective is that these people want to be here because it's a better place. And in the case of many migrants, and especially people that are climate refugees, they don't necessarily want to move. And I think your articles made it clear that they had to move. It was clear to me what you talked about, especially in Central America and in particular in Guatemala and El Salvador, water-driven, so flooding, drought, to the point where farming, subsistence farming was no longer possible. There were no other options. Is that right? I mean, did water play that big a role? Yeah, I mean, it's all about water. There's either too much of it or too little of it. And uh, either one of those are driving extraordinary food scarcity around the world. And it's that food scarcity that's going to, to drive people from their homes. In Central America, it was a challenge from a reporting perspective because, as you know, it's very difficult to attribute, you know, any one individual decision or any single phenomenon to climate change. And so it was really about proving the thesis that people would move in response to environmental change. Um, but the data and the science points to increasing water scarcity in that region going forward. Um, and so, you know, the assumption or the connection, you know, in, in my work is that if they move due to observed environmental conditions now, then they're more certain to move and follow those same patterns as, you know, the, the climate driven, you know, drought or water scarcity takes hold in the future. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because, um, I wanted to ask you about that and, and I don't think you really covered it in your, in your stories in poor countries in the developing world, there is a lack of governance, right? There's a lack of water management. And I found myself wondering if entities like the World Bank or the wealthier countries like the United States, for example, or Canada, uh, were to invest in water management and building capacity, um, that might have a real a profound impact on migration from those regions in particular. I'm thinking about Central America right now. Yeah, I mean, there's there's agreement across the board that foreign aid, American aid into these regions specifically for, uh, you know, 
for programs like you described, both to shore up governance and infrastructure development, but also specifically for, you know, to shore up farming and um, stabilize environmental conditions would have a dramatic effect on people's welfare and well-being and and as a result on on the flow of migration. Um, that's not really a mystery to uh, to you know, both government and academic researchers that I talk to uh, so long as you know their sympathies politically kind of lie in that direction. I mean if we have an administration now that um, you know is dismissive of all of that and and an advocate for just closing the border. Um, but that's not really in line with you know what the science and, and research says. Uh, in my reporting down there, I spent a lot of time with the UN's World Food Program. You know, we were in some rural mountainous areas outside of San Salvador and uh, also places, uh, you know, very close to the region I was in in Guatemala suffered from the same drought. It's it's the dry corridor of Central America and farming had been equally tough there as where I just described in Guatemala. Um, but for something like $30,000 in this village, the World Food Program had provided a uh, a greenhouse tent and a misting irrigation system and a water capture system and a really you know large plastic jug basically that sat on this piece of land. Nothing fancy, no canals, no pumps, um, you know, very little power demand. Uh, but set up this system for uh, for one of these small towns, and I visited it and. It was thriving. I mean, they just had like the most luscious, uh, you know, vegetable crops inside. Their their uh, their food supply for the small community was bountiful. They were selling their extra and had more income than they had before. And um, uh, you know, three of the people that I interviewed there described their lives very similarly to uh, those that I interviewed in Guatemala and said that you know migration was one of the things they were contemplating. Whether that was to San Salvador to look for a security job or, you know, or onward to someplace like the United States, um, they were on the verge of, of packing their things. Uh, they didn't need to do that. They preferred not to do that. They were perfectly happy. And, uh, you know, again, like the cost to the, to the World Food Program for this particular, you know, little project was so minimal and it was just so tiny. And to think of, you know, the migration averted as a result of it. Uh, was extraordinary. And so, you know, those are the types of programs that need to continue, but the United States cut off a lot of its of its foreign aid for programs like that in 2017. And, um, you know, those programs are, are drying up. Pretty dire situation, but that particular story is a encouraging and I think uh, maybe a nice template uh, or a case study for for some of the development banks and NGOs to to think about. So I want to turn our attention now to a wealthier country like the United States, and it was the focus of the second of your stories that were in the New York Times Magazine. And I wonder if you can share with us, you know, what are the, some of the differences that are happening in the United States? What's the perspective? And I guess most importantly, are you seeing people on the move and why are they on the move? Yeah, the effects of climate change will not be as as severe, you know, for the United States as they will be for parts of Central America or the African Sahel, uh, but they will still have, you know, dramatic effect and will change our lives. And that was basically the premise of, of looking at the same question for the United States is it might not be movement in response to climate might not be driven by the same degree of desperation, but it was sure to happen. And when it happens, uh, you know, to have a really transformational effect on American geography and American culture. But I'll tell you, this story just published, uh, that I just did about Americans moving when the premise of, you know, how I might write it uh, was first conceived back then, it was a more playful uh, premise than, than it is now. By the time, you know, two more fire seasons went by through the course of reporting and writing the story, 
it's a very real consideration. Uh, you know, I don't know how to put my finger on, you know, the likelihood that, that we'll pack up and move, but it's, it's substantial. It's a, it's a daily conversation in my house. It's a daily conversation in my community amongst, you know, my friends and the people I know. Uh, and, um, and it's a difficult decision because, uh, you know, on paper, it looks kind of clear cut, but, um, you know, uh, you know, spreadsheets and, uh, you know, and financial valuations can't, can't quantify uh, all the subjective uh, things about home. So, um, you know, it's a painful premise. It's uh, I, I am just like those I interviewed in Guatemala in a way, though, though obviously, you know, far more privileged, but um, I don't want to move. And uh, if I do in response to this, it will be something that is sort of forced uh, upon me. So my own story, which you and I have talked about before, in my case, I think that uh, climate was a part of it. I mean, we had moved to the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains. And one of our past episodes, we talked about those fires uh, across California, including Southern California. And like you, you know, you can sit on your front porch and see the flames in the mountains dangerously close. If we were still living in that house that we lived in in California, we would have evacuated. This is because of the Bobcat fire. We would have had to evacuate. And so in our case, it wasn't the factor, but it was becoming extremely hot. Uh, the fires were pretty scary and unhealthy. So that in combination with a job opportunity up here, this job here at uh, the Global Institute for Water Security, the climate and getting away from there and getting away from the drought and all of the stress of the drought-related work that I was doing all factored into our discussion. So it, it makes me think that um, urban planners, uh, city and regional planners need access to forecasting models. And so maybe that's a nice uh, pivot for us to talk about some of the modeling work that you did. Can you explain it to us and maybe some of the strengths and weaknesses? Yeah. So we built a model uh, in partnership with the City University of New York Brute College, a researcher named Brian Jones. Um, Brian had been developing a, a model to look at migration and then migration related to climate for 10 years or so and had used that model with the World Bank to do a global study of, of human migration in response to climate. The model projects population movement uh, in response to climate change under several socioeconomic scenarios as defined by the United Nations. And so, um, you know, a more closed approach, a less globalized approach uh, basically leads to large population growth in those developing countries, uh, deepening poverty and worsening conditions. And on the flip side, uh, maintaining the kind of globalized system that we've pursued over the last couple of decades, including more open borders and allowing more free movement of people, generally leads to less pressure on, on those cultures. So not only you know the movement of people into the United States, but the improved welfare and economic improvement of you know the systems in Central America where people originate from. All of those models are based on these basic assumptions about how people move in response to environmental change. I was describing about you know what I learned from talking to farmers in Guatemala. The thing that was really crazy when we went to try to do a similar modeling project for the United States is that none of those rules really apply uh, here. And so we couldn't continue um, that modeling to predict how and where Americans would move in response to climate. 
the modeling it just doesn't work uh, and it doesn't work because americans basically don't follow the logical pathway that most other people in the world do in response to changing conditions you know americans tend to move towards risk we've moved into this desert southwest despite a lack of water we moved to the coastline of florida despite the growing hurricane risk and clear knowledge of, of sea level rise and we in california you know move into wildland interfaces in the foothills of the mountains where fires are, are most likely to burn down our communities. And we've done that because there's a whole host of perverse incentives that have encouraged that behavior. So cheap insurance, mandated insurance by states that don't want the economic decline of the commercial insurance companies pulling out, uh, subsidized water, uh, you know, an issue you're familiar with. So, you know, if you if you took those systems and those subsidies away, then Americans might respond the way, you know, Central Americans do to, to climate, but we couldn't model movement in the United States. We could only model uh, the specific climate perils, the, the environmental perils, um, and not people's response to them. So what I find really interesting is something that you, you brought up in the article on the United States. When that switch flips and insurance is no longer available in those most vulnerable or high risk regions, right? And or, right, the groundwater hits rock bottom or the price just goes through the roof. When those subsidies end, then the migration could be huge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is what's beginning to happen now. And so the question is how, you know, how, how quickly does, does that happen? Um, you know, Americans' relationship to the environment in general is characterized by, you know, this issue of externalizing costs where we really don't calculate the, the true environmental costs or consequences into whatever our, you know, decision-making or funding process is or policy-making process. And you know, what we're talking about here is a form of um, those externalized costs suddenly becoming internalized costs for, for individual households, right? So when you have perverse incentives and insurance availability that's cheap and easy. Um, you know, it, uh, it tells people, tells homeowners, it tells, you know, citizens that the decisions that they're making are okay and that they are still cheap. And as insurance, for example, becomes harder to come by, uh, it will make it more expensive or more, you know, financially dangerous uh, for, you know, for homeowners to live in, in a wildfire prone area, for example. And that's not necessarily like, an extraordinary change in the external environment. It's not only that um, you know that uh, that it's actually becoming more dangerous to live in California. It's that those externalized costs are uh, suddenly being forced upon individual homeowners, individual people. And you know the what the research suggests is that the more individual people have to face the full range of consequences, both for their own decisions and you know, of a change in climate that they'll start to make different decisions or they'll be forced to make different decisions, including uh, whether or not to move. Um, the kind of tipping point uh, that that experts, you know, I quoted my article talk about, uh, you know, or the, you know, the flipping of a switch, that risk is that there is, you know, from a real estate perspective, you know, when you talk about like American homeowners, like the solid middle class slice of the country that has equity in, in, uh, in their property, 
um, that there's a sort of an infectious, uh, you know, effect that it's not just the real cost uh, of uh, real dangers for where, you know, home or property is located, but the, the mounting perception that everything in the surrounding area uh, is also threatened and the precipitous drop in, in value that can come with that sort of a lot like the, you know, the mortgage crisis we saw in 2008. Um, where you know uh, all home values dropped, even even those that were you know still owned by um, by financially stable you know owners, um, and so and that's the kind of thing that could lead that could be you know sort of a climate driven uh, you know tipping point, a financial tipping point that would really you know change change the equation. It was a pleasure having you on the program today. Again, thanks so much for being on. Let's talk about water and let's keep in touch. My pleasure. It's great to see you and great to chat. Thanks for having me on. Abram Lusgarten is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated senior environmental reporter at ProPublica. He has recently published a series on global climate migration in partnership with ProPublica and with the New York Times Magazine. Now, you heard Abram talk at length about the UN World Food Program and the great work they're doing in Central America promoting water conservation that keeps farmers growing food and staying on the land instead of having to migrate with their families. Well, literally, while we were recording this interview, news was breaking that the food program had won the Nobel Peace Prize. Of course, that's really awesome. But in particular, it shows everyone how something as basic as promoting a healthy environment, including water conservation, can stop wars and lead to a more peaceful, bountiful world. We'd like to know more about how the World Food Program does this. So we hope to talk to them soon on an upcoming episode of Let's Talk About Water. Please. Stay tuned for that. And that's it for another week of Let's Talk About Water, which comes to you from the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan. It's a production of the Walrus Lab. I'm your host, Jay Famiglietti. Thank you to all of those who helped put the show together, including Mark Ferguson, Laura McFarland, Amy Hergut, Jesse Widow, and our producer, Sean Perpick. And as always, special thanks to Linda Lillianfeld. Come join us for a fresh new show on Wednesday, November 4th. But why don't you make it really easy on yourself and subscribe now to Let's Talk About Water and then set an alert so you know the moment a fresh episode drops. We're also really easy to find because we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many other quality podcasting platforms. You can also stream us on Facebook at Let's Talk About Water Podcast or on Twitter at LTAW Podcast. See you next time. We know you do, especially for thought leaders like Biff Naked, Margaret Atwood, Desmond Cole, Amanda Paris, Andre Picard, and the list goes on and on. The Conversation Piece is a new podcast from The Walrus. Subscribe today and get new perspective delivered on the Acast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play.